It's Off Exit 10, presented by Capital District Sport and Fitness. So we have Rob Zayas with us tonight. He is the executive director of the New York State Public High School Athletic Association. He holds a PhD in sports administration from the University of New Mexico. Um, and he's really in charge of the 783 member schools in New York State, which makes up like around 600,000 students. So it's a, a, a lot of kids and coaches and schools and decisions to be made. So Rob, we appreciate you coming on tonight. I appreciate you having me on. This is exciting. And uh, my daughter works out here. So always nice to be uh, given the opportunity to talk with you guys. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the world of youth sports is a wild place and has only gotten, you know, in, in my small time frame working in this realm since like 2010, I've only seen things escalate and, and get crazier in terms of the social media presence and pressures, um, pressures on kids and pressures on parents. So before we get rolling, Rob, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about your background academically and how you kind of made your way into into this role? Yeah, I mean, I, I got my start. I ran cross-country and track in college out in East Texas State. Um, and uh, it's not the end of the earth, but you can certainly see it from there. Um, <laughs> it's a small little town out in East Texas, uh, but I got the opportunity to run cross-country and track, which was an absolute joy. And I uh, got my teaching degree from there and ended up teaching and coaching in Central Texas for three years and then went out to the University of New Mexico to go to graduate school to get a master's degree in sports administration and um, and then just happened to be in the right place at the right time and uh, started working at the New Mexico Activities Association as a communications director. Um, just actually found the position in the classified ads of the Albuquerque oh. Journal. I was looking for jobs. I you know, was going to graduate school and um, just happened to see the classified ad, applied, got the job, didn't really know a lot about the High School Athletic Association business. And then ultimately over a decade, worked my way up to associate director. And then in the fall of 2012, the executive director job opened up here in New York. And I told my wife, I said, what do you think about applying? Don't worry, we're not moving to New York. I said, there's no way the third largest high school athletic association in the country is gonna take a, take a chance on a guy that nobody knows. I had no connections in the state of New York. And uh, I told my wife, and plus, I'd be the youngest person in the country to hold the position of executive director at the age of 36. So I said, don't worry, we're not leaving Albuquerque. We're not moving to upstate New York. I'm just going to apply just to see if I can get some good interview experience and just kind of see, you know, see how the whole process works. About five weeks later, we found ourselves moving to upstate <laughs> New York. So it's been an absolute joy. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy the job. I, I love living in upstate New York, and, and I just love the ever-changing kind of dynamics of what high school athletics brings each and every single day. But um, I, as you mentioned at the beginning of the of the show, I started working on my doctorate in sports administration in 2007, about a month before my oldest daughter, Gabby, who works out here, uh, was born. So just started working on my doctorate just as something to kind of keep on learning and, and being part of the program. I had a couple of professors that put some pressure on me to to start the PhD program. So I did and uh, didn't realize it was going to take 11 years uh, to finally get done with the PhD, but I stuck with it and uh, ultimately ended up getting done in, in May of 18. So, um, But I, I consider that a, a huge accomplishment. To be able to, to finish the PhD program uh, with two young kids, um, my youngest daughter was a week old when I started taking advanced statistics. So, I mean, many a nights I was sitting at the, you know, kitchen table at 10 p.m. working on a stats project with a, a Red Bull or a Diet Mountain Dew or something, just trying to get through. And, and uh, ultimately, I was able to get done. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a real grind. So that 11 years was just spaced out because you had a family and you had a job and you had to find pockets of time to fit it in. Yeah, I hit a real roadblock once I got here. I was all but dissertation when I got to New York. So I'd finished all the coursework, finished my comprehensive exams and had to write the dissertation. And that... Uh, that was a task in itself. Um, quick story behind the the, the dissertation. Uh, I try to work out as much as I can. Um, my wife used to teach group fitness at our YMCA. And uh, so I'd go to her class occasionally and she would annihilate me. And uh, it was mid-January. I was getting ready for the state championships to start. And I knew already could anticipate I wasn't going to work out once the state championships started. So I laid in the back of the group fitness room. I went to like a Tabata class or something. It was me and like 25 
uh, moms from Clifton Park. And, uh, you know, all of them are in much better shape. And I laid in the back of the room and my wife said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, but you know what? I need to really start working out. I'm going to just... I'm just going to work out every single day. And my wife said, that's ridiculous. I said, but that's the only way I can do it. So I'm going to work out every single day, 30 minutes a day, never going to take a day off. And she said, you're crazy. And I said, yeah, I know. So I started doing that. And I ultimately worked out for 75 straight days. Well, at that point, I hadn't started my dissertation yet. And I told my wife, I said, if I can work out 75 straight days, why can't I just work on my dissertation a little every day. It doesn't have, I don't have to, I don't have an hour. I don't have two hours, but I'm just going to find a way to do 30 minutes of working out and 30 minutes of dissertation each and every single day. And that's ultimately how I got done. Cause had it not been for the workout streak, as my kids started calling it, the dissertation streak would have never been created. So uh, the workout streak ended at 382 days when my wife and I went to Rome. Um, there was just no way I was going to work out in Rome. And then uh, dissertate, dissertation streak ended at 367 straight days. So I, I did it every day. And, and some days it was just 30 minutes. And some days it was 30 minutes of reading research in the parking lot, waiting for my daughter to come out of gymnastics. Other days it was, I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning, work out for 30 minutes. Not the best workout, by the way, but it was a workout. Then I'd do dissertation for 30 minutes, get changed, and then drive to Buffalo for work and then drive all the way back that evening. So, you know, I just found a way to get it done. And that's ultimately how, had it not been for the workout streak, the dissertation streak would have never happened. And who knows, I might not have gotten done. Right. So. Exercise and do that. Have you read the book, The Power of Habit? No. They talk about, there's a section that talks about keystone habits. So it's setting up, you know, one habit in your life that can then almost domino affect others. And exercise can be that for a lot of people, whether they start a workout routine, whether it's anything small to big, but then that may kickstart their nutrition to be better or their sleep to be better. And all of a sudden these habits, this keystone habit can build on the other habits. Right. It's like small, small changes over time lead to big changes. And like, that's a perfect example of it. And then I'm sure, especially for your kids, seeing you do that, it helps them hopefully with their work ethic and what they can see. Okay. This is how I can manage my time, especially like time management. I feel like that's such a big thing right now with youth sports and everything going on is time management is such a hard thing for kids to understand and how they can accomplishment. And even like for parents too, figuring out, okay, my kids got this practice. They got to go to the gym at this time. Then they have this lesson at this time. Rob's like, I'm there, man. And Rob's like, dude, I get it. I'm right there with you. And yeah. Rob's got driving all over New York state, like doing stuff for the public high school athletic association. It's like, it gets overwhelming, but you being able to do that, I'm sure will hopefully translate to, you know, your kids understanding time management a little bit better and being able to be like, okay, I got 30 minutes. I can get this done in 30 minutes. And, and that's really all that sometimes I have is, I mean, I jumped on the Peloton this morning for, for 30 minutes and got a quick workout in at 530 this morning. And, and that's my 30 minutes for the day and I'm done. So I'm actually on day 14 of a brand new workout streak trying, to, there we go. trying to get it going again Let's because- go. Uh, you know, I hadn't worked out since I got COVID, but that was back in January and I'm still using the COVID excuse <laughs> for six months of, of not working out. Yeah. I mean, so I want to get into some of the chaos and craziness and pressures and perceptions of youth sports, but there are a lot of benefits that you have to see first, like having playing on a team and athletics set you up for, you know, to have good skills and habits later on in life or to set you up to do maybe better in school or hang out with other social circles. Like you see that, right, as a big benefit? Oh, most certainly. I mean, I think, I mean, if you're gonna hire somebody here at your gym, you're gonna look for somebody that has good time management, that wants to be part of a team, that can effectively communicate, um, that understands how to work well with others. I mean, those are all characteristics that you get from participating in high school sports. So a uh, firm believer that kids benefit and communities and schools benefit when kids participate. So. I mean, that's a big drive of our association is how can we increase participation? Because we know when kids participate in high school sports, they get better grades. Everybody knows that. I mean, the research is there and uh, they attend school at a greater rate and the whole school community benefits. So I've spoken to school superintendents before and I've told them, um, you know, if I came in to your a, a school board meeting and said, I've just created a brand new program and this program is guaranteed that anybody participating in it will get better grades and they'll attend school at a greater rate and they'll have less discipline problems. Would you be interested in adopting this brand new program? And by the way, it's gonna be less than 2% of your entire budget. Every school district in the state would say, you could guarantee all of those benefits, definitely we'll find the money. Well, they already have that program in their schools and that's high school sports. So 
I mean, I think that's one thing that we have to continue to really make sure schools and communities and parents understand is that kids are benefiting when they're participating in tremendous ways. Yeah, I think just to learn like the effort you put in can then reap equal reward, I think is a tremendous like lesson to learn as you move through high school and then college, whether you play a collegiate sport or not. So let's face it, like, I don't know what the exact stats are. We can look them up. Maybe you know them, but like take a percentage of kids that play in high school. It's a way less percentage that plays in college and an incredibly less percentage that is going to play after college. So to have these these lessons take you to the workforce is is big. It's amazing. You know, I did do a little research in preparation of uh, coming to talk with you guys today. Um, and on that, not surprised. <laughs> 547,000 boys play basketball in the United States. 547,000 boys play high school basketball. 0.9% of them play Division One college basketball. So less than 1% go on to play at the D1 level. But how many kids are playing basketball right now with the hope and the desire of playing at the D1 level? And if that's their only reason for participating, that's what's concerning. Now, is this, so this is the start of where we see this trickle down of sports specialization and D1 pressure, whether it's D1 pressure a kid puts on themselves or their peers or a parent or a coach. But that's society today. I mean, I think that's the, one of the greatest concerns that I have as the executive director of the Public High School Athletic Association is just to see how really ill-informed a lot of parents are today. And, you know, I get concerned when I hear parents say, well, they're playing AAU or they're playing club baseball, they're playing club volleyball, and we're spending every single weekend traveling up and down the East Coast mm-hmm. uh, to go ahead and, and, and participate in club volleyball or club basketball because my child's going to get a Division One college scholarship. The reality is statistically it's just not it's right. not it's very unlikely that your child's going to get a division 1 college scholarship not that there's anything wrong with aspiring to get that d1 scholarship but if you're putting all of your eggs in that basket if you're hoping and you're saying we're going to spend every weekend at uh, club volleyball tournaments regardless of where they are because that's our goal well that's fine if that's your goal but if that's the only reason that's going you're you're probably going to end up being disappointed and that's concerning is that we, we're setting our kids up with the understanding or the hope that D1 is the only level to play. And the reality is, is very few kids get the opportunity to play at the D1 level, especially very few kids get the opportunity to play at D1 level on a full ride division one college scholarship. Right. Right. And like, that's something, that's one of my favorite conversations to have with kids in here is talking about college and finding the right fit, not the right level, what fits you right. And we have a lot of kids in here that approach it very well. And then obviously you have kids that you can tell put pressure on themselves and we try to help them through that and everything. And I made a post on my Instagram about division one, division two, II, division three, JUCO, like all of those different levels and the opportunities and how much money people get and the percentage of athletes that get money. And 80% of division three athletes get some sort of financial aid and money to go play sports. They don't offer athletic scholarships though. So they figure out a way to get you to come there and give you some sort of financial support without necessarily having to give you an athletic scholarship. So, and that's where like today I had a conversation with a kid who was like, my parents are on me about my regions, this, that, the other thing. And I just told him, I was like, hey, I was like, the right fit for you might be a division two or division three and having good grades is gonna get you more money. And even at a division one level, having good grades will get you more money because only six sports offer full rides. So, if, but how many parents even know that? Exactly. Right. That's and that's the, why that's I the education that piece. It really mm-hmm. is. That's piece. Like when we, when, when my wife and I first moved back here to open this gym, you know, my mindset was, let me help kids prevent injury and get stronger and be able to play better on the field. But as we've kind of evolved as a business, like obviously all of those are still goals of ours with kids. But it's like, we want to make this a place where you can take that shield of pressure off and where we can educate them about what other things are out there because the youth sports, the industry is crazy. So since you, when did you come here? 2012, you said? 2012. I mean, has the pressure towards specialization, has have you felt that become more since 2012? I think so. And I think what I've seen over the course of not just my 10 years here in New York, but the 10 years pre- prior to that in New Mexico was that when I was growing up, I'm 46. When I was growing up, very few kids specialized. 
Mm-hmm. And if they did specialize, they were specializing with the goal of getting that Division One college scholarship. That was a long time ago. My fear today is that kids are specializing just because they want to make the high school team. And so really, we've seen a shift in why kids are specializing and everybody else is doing it. So how can I be the only one not doing it? Right. And it takes a lot. I mean, my wife and I have, we have Gabby that's 14 and 11-year-old Olivia and she's been specializing in gymnastics for the last nine years. That's a unique sport, though, because you'll get the pinnacle of that sport. How old are you at the pinnacle? Yeah. What are these? 16, 16 maybe. Right. That's I think a very they have unique to be 17 one. now. I think they just made that rule for the Olympics. That yeah. They have to be 17. To, but to, we knew, I mean, yeah. and Olivia is an incredible gymnast, but we are can already know she's not going to the Olympics, yeah. you know, but but she came to us and said, you know what? I want to try other sports. I want to go to the movies on Friday night. I want to try other things. And so now as an 11-year-old, she was more mature than I am as, you know, the executive director of high school sports <laughs> is she came to us and said, "I want to take a step back." And she has. And to her credit, she's playing lacrosse and doing a great job. She's going to start playing field hockey in the fall. Um so that's great to see, but very few kids unfortunately do that um or they feel like they can go to their parents and say, "Listen, I know we've been at the gym 5 days a week for the last 9 years." But I want to take a step back. And that's important for kids to communicate that with their parents. Because if the only reason why they're going to practice every single day is because their parents are dragging them out the door, that's a problem. I always tell parents, make sure you're not the one driving to practice. Make sure your kids are the one driving to practice. Mm -hmm. And make sure they're the ones that are excited and enthusiastic about going. But if you're having to drag your son out the door to get him to go to Little League practice every afternoon, it might be a time to kind of rethink whether, you know, why you're why you're doing what you're doing and maybe soccer is something that you want to play but the problem as i say that is if you're starting to play soccer as a freshman in high school you're already so far behind the rest of the kids that's my next question is okay let's say you come to that realization either the kid does or the parents do or you do it as a team which is phenomenal but now do the systems in place allow that to happen it doesn't and that's the sad part of what we are finding today is that if somebody, if a kid does want to come out for a for a high school sport, and that's the first time that they're participating in that high school sport today, it's very difficult depending upon what the sport is. If they've never played basketball before, and they're they're saying to themselves, you know, I'd really like to try basketball as a 14 year old freshman. The the reality is is that's probably not going to be as successful as they want it to be. But that's as a result of the system that's in place. Mm-hmm. But how many kids are? all that enthusiastic about playing basketball if they've been playing basketball for the last 10 or 12 years and they're burnt out because they play year round. And I think that's one of the things that I try my best to educate parents on is that we have to understand why we're participating. And you know what? And again, for me and for my wife, I I think it it is a bit of a wake-up call when you try to ask yourself, why are we doing this? So, and I think it's going to continue to be questions that parents are going to have to ask themselves. Right. And we we had uh, UAlbany, one of the volleyball coaches at UAlbany on, and she even talked about those players that play volleyball for only volleyball for 12 years. Great volleyball player. This is player A. Player B has played, you know, volleyball for the same amount of time or even less time. Maybe they've only played eight years, right? but they've played basketball the whole time or they play, did track or some other sport. They didn't just do volleyball. They're more likely to take player B because of the likelihood of burnout from player A. And that's where I think parents and kids and coaches all lose track of the burnout side of things. Like how many kids make it through high school sports that start specializing at eight years old? And then how many kids make it through their college sports if they do make it there? if they've been specializing since they were eight years old. It's it's a tough thing to battle with. And, and it should be fun, right? I mean, yeah. that's why kids play sports. It's it's fun. It's it's. I always had fun. It's great <laughs> to be around your friends. It's, um, you know, it's enjoyable. But I think we've gotten to a point in, again, youth sports society that I'm, I'm fearful that kids aren't having as much fun as they should. And I think, again, that's looking at the amount of travel involved. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, my daughter used to, Gabby, used to do cheerleading. She was, in one month, she went to Baltimore twice and Nashville once on club cheerleading trips. I felt like a travel agent. I was booking airfare and hotels and rental cars for her and my wife. And I thought, what are we doing? Yeah. And the amount of money that goes into it, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I was having a conversation with one of our clients who has no association with sports whatsoever in here. And we were just talking about, like, if she ever has kids, 
she wants them to participate, but she's she's afraid that the pressure and all of that is gonna whether it's on her or on her kid if she if they have kids is gonna be too much and she's not gonna know what where to go with well, it. There's a piece too. I mean, just you know, developing psychologically where you know our brains aren't meant for extreme competition until a certain point. Yeah. So for sure, you're gonna cause some issues when you have a seven-year-old, you know, traveling to play five baseball tournaments in the month of July. I mean, that's extreme, but that's real, right? It's real. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's what's happening. Yeah. And it's like the taking the fun out, like I see two big pieces and let me know if you see the same, that kind of are fun drainers, but they're, you can't stop these two. It's two big systems. It's, you have the monetization side of youth sports. So now you have, you know, coaches who are now you're paying them money in their pocket to help your kid. So now you're gonna have biases and you're gonna have issues on that front. And then you have the social media side of things. And that's two heavy things that can take the fun out. Oh, definitely. When we first got here to New York, I was talking to another dad in the community and he said, we're going down to North Carolina this weekend to look at division one colleges for women's soccer. Um, and he said, my daughter's club soccer coach has told her she has the ability and the skills and and everything to to play D1 soccer. And I, I was thinking to myself, at this time, I was in my mid-30s. I thought, man, this guy's about my same age. He must have had kids really young in life. I mean, she's getting ready to go to college. How old is your daughter, I asked him. And he was like, oh, she's 12 years old. I thought, see, that's the problem. We have club coaches that are telling parents, your kid is going to get a Division One college scholarship, when the reality is it's very unlikely for that to occur. Not that they should stop playing because of the statistics related to the likelihood of getting a college scholarship, but I think parents need to make sure they're informed of what the reality is. Yeah, and I, I can remember growing up, you know, my mom always used to tell me, she's like, listen, I know you love playing sports, but you got to have another, another plan, another outlet, essentially. And, you know, part of me when I was younger was like, ah, what are you talking about? I'm going to make it professional. I'm going to play in the NFL not playing in the NFL right now. Um, and those, but her constantly telling me that was one of those things. It wasn't that she wasn't supporting me and didn't think I could do it. It was more like, hey, I want you to be prepared if this doesn't work. And unfortunately, parents now are influenced, parents now are either naive and in, not influ influenced by coaches, club coaches, like you said, or it's their own thing that they are trying to put the pressure on. And I think, like you said, it's, it's a tough battle with, you know, when you got a club coach telling a, 12-year-old, she's got a chance to make D1. If she was 17 and she's a junior in high school, that's different. It's different. Yeah. To go visit the schools. You're 17. You got, you, you're close. At 12, it's like, you know, Danny Almonte was pitching in the League World Series. He was like 14, but like, he was supposedly 12. Like, yeah, like Jordan, we were out trying to catch Pokemon at 12 years old. Like, that's the times yeah. we were, you know? Yeah, like, I was out playing wiffle ball. <laughs> Living my best life. So things are different. But then the lines start to get blurred and this is this is something that has been driving me crazy for the past year. The lines get blurred between um, the travel and the monetized world and the high school world. So now you have high school coaches who are now doing private lessons for extra money in the winter. You can't tell me that can't bias a coach when it comes to tryouts when somebody's been putting money in your pocket for the last four months. It's tricky. And that that is tricky. And that is something that school districts are constantly having to deal with. Yeah, that's something that comes up. And it's tough. Yeah, we see in here with kids. We're just mm -hmm. like, ah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a tough thing to, I don't know, stop and address. It is. And I think kids and parents, again, need to be aware of what the reality is. And I think right. that's my greatest advice to a youth sport parent that may be listening to this is make sure you're doing your research. Make sure you understand what the reality is. And right. if you go into it with the information and and it just makes it that much you're you're be able to provide those participation opportunities for your for your children to a much greater degree than somebody that's going in being fed information that just isn't correct right right how much and it's like so many spots to fill coaching spots for high school sports like how much research and background and interviewing goes into like when you have to bring in a new high school coach? Well, that depends upon the school district. For a school okay. district like Shenandoah, I mean, incredible program here in Clifton Park with great leadership. And I think, you know, they have a plethora of applications if a varsity coaching position opens up. Other parts of the state may not be um, as easy to get 
quality applicants. But I think that's really going to depend upon where the school district is and how many people are interested in that specific coaching role. Right, right. Have you seen with the uptick in um, like travel sports, have you seen it be detrimental to the participation in high school athletics or no? Yeah, definitely, because more kids are specializing, as we just got done talking about, and mm -hmm. they're less likely to play football in the fall, basketball in the winter, and baseball in the spring. Now they're just playing baseball because right. they want to make the baseball team. Right, right. Yes, that. And they're playing more games than Major League Baseball players play in a year. In some cases. Which is crazy. Like, when kids tell me how many games they play, I'm like, hey, you realize, like, the Yankees play only 162 games, right? And they're like, oh, wow. I was like, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't be playing, like, 200 games a year. You know, it's a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough with the multi-sports now. Like, how do you participate in more than one sport when all the specialization is going on? Yeah, I think that's the reason why I'm a huge believer in the sport of track and field. Oftentimes mm -hmm. it's a no-cut sport. I mean, play basketball and run track. Mm -hmm. Plus, I think, again, not that I'm biased, but this is going to sound biased and that's okay. Um, You're but I think a little biased. What's that? You're allowed to be a little biased. I don't think there's a better sport right now than, than track and field and swimming. Because kids, we are living in an immediate gratification mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. They want immediate feedback as mm -hmm. to how they're doing. In a sport like track and field, they don't need a coach. They don't need their parents to tell them they're getting better. Right. They can see the results, and they can attribute it back to the amount of work that they're putting in. Right. So they have a really good week of work, and then they have a meet, and they see that their time improved by X number mm -hmm. of seconds, or they threw further. Yeah. Well, now they say, okay. I worked hard this week and I got faster. So next week I'm going to work hard again. And you know what? I'm going to get faster again. And they don't need a coach telling them that they're getting better. Their swing looks better. They're able to identify that themselves through their time and through their, um, through their efforts. So again, a little biased, but I don't think that there's a better sport right now for kids today than track and field, just because it gives them that immediate feedback. Yeah. And like, for me going on that bias a little bit, like I talked to, People in here about um, football was my favorite sport and my main sport. I played basketball and baseball, but football was like my passion. And to me, football is the only high school sport that I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, that has a true in-season, off-season, preseason. Because there's not club football teams all over the place. There's not travel football teams. There might be like a winter flag football league, but it's not the same as going and traveling to Georgia, Alabama, Minnesota, wherever you got to go, Michigan, all these other places for baseball, basketball, volleyball, whatever. Like football to me is like, again, kind of like you were talking about, you don't get necessarily that instant gratification, but you get that opportunity to be able to go, okay, football's done. I can go play basketball or I can go play baseball. Now it's a matter of like, are those coaches going to allow me to continue to play football? But if you really like it, you're, you'll continue to do it. And I think I've seen that with like some of our lacrosse players in here that play, you know, football and lacrosse or um, some of our other players that do like baseball and football is that they are able to put that time into baseball because football doesn't take away so much from it. And that's the thing I like. I personally like about how football is structured is that it does give you that opportunity like, OK, it's the offseason. I'm going to focus on weight training and skills. It's preseason time to get ready for the season. Then you got your season. And there's not a lot of sports in high school that have that anymore. Yeah, you're correct. Seven on seven has kind of taken on the club component of yeah, football. A little bit, yeah. But it, it's still not the same, right? You know what? It, yeah. It's fun because it's a different stimulus, it is. right? Because it's, it's flag, different. right? It's not the... Uh, it's oftentimes two, two touch two or touch, whatever right? it might yeah. be. Yeah, right. It's fun. But I think it comes down to education. Like, you're right. That's the biggest piece. But educating all parties, educating parents and educating sport coaches and then educating the kids. Because, yeah, the systems do make it tricky too but if you really want something and you know you have the right conversations you can make multi-sport work you can and i think it also goes back to the coaching staff that you have there at the school is right. are they apt to really encouraging multi-sport participation and i can tell you um i think our high school coaches really are i see it more of a problem on the club side where right. the club coach is advising the student athlete to only play mm -hmm. a specific sport but a lot of times the high school coach is encouraging those kids to play multiple sports throughout the school year. Yeah. yeah. So since we're talking about multiple sports, I remember one of our clients in here, he, you know, he'll, he played multiple sports. Um, he's in one of our adult clients, but he sends me like random statistics that he finds and the NFL draft this year, 89.9% .9 of the 262 players drafted were multi-sport athletes in high school. 
68.7% participated in track and field. And 43.1% were three-plus sport athletes in high school. Only 11% were specialists. So when I see that, it's like, okay, the highest level athletes in the world are multi-sport athletes. Whether it's just track and football, it's still multi-sport, right? Like, doesn't matter. But when you see that, and that's why I like as much as I can with my Instagram and reach whoever I can, and hopefully other people share it, I, I like to put those numbers out there and talk to the kids and hear about it. Cause it's like, dude, you got, you know, who was, whoever was number one pick this year, probably played baseball, football, and maybe basketball, who knows? Like, and that's where I think we're losing sight of it is that the best athletes in the world do participate in more than one sport and they don't specialize until maybe when they're in college. You know, and that's that I, when you, we were talking about, it, I was like, oh, I got to pull this up. Cause I remember him sending it to me. And I actually just saw another one that had to do with like the possibility of making like estimated probability of competing in college athletics. And there's all different percentages. So like baseball, 7.5%. And that's not division one. That's all levels. 7.5%. Let's look at like ice hockey is actually pretty high for percentage wise. It's like 12.3 lacrosse is 12.8. Um, and that's in men's and women's ice hockey is 26.2. So it's, you know, it's all relative to how many gender, people, are playing, how many people sure. are playing, what, how many programs are offered, but like those percentages are, are small, no matter what the level is division one, two or three. So those numbers need to be put out there more, I think, to educate people so they can understand like, Hey, this isn't the right route to go. And, and I, I'm a firm believer that we just have to do whatever we can to get kids involved. Yes. I mean, 100%. actively involved in their school is the, the main goal. My main goal is, I mean, we're on the verge of, of getting girls wrestling adopted. We just started girls flag football. I saw that. That's, I was so happy I mean, when I saw it's that. It's great. I mean, just the more we can get kids involved in their school community, mm -hmm. regardless of what they're doing, I'm a firm believer that that only benefits those student athletes. I love it. You take the physical benefits and you take the social benefits and the mental health benefits. It's tremendous. So all this craziness is already there in the new sports landscape. It's like then COVID hits in New York and you're the guy everybody's looking to for answers. How crazy is that, man? It got crazy really quick. Um, my daughter and I were at the indoor track and field championships about five, six days before the world shut down. And so this would have been the indoor track and field championships, March of 2020. I was hearing about COVID, but, you know, I think we all just didn't really know what it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had about 2,500 people attend the indoor track and field championships on Staten Island. Uh, so we probably led to some form of COVID spread at that point. Um, and uh, I stood at the front entrance and hand stamped people for re-entry. And I'm thinking to myself now, you know, I mean, you look back, I mean, I probably, you know, directly contributed to COVID spread. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just got crazy so quick. I mean, and nobody could anticipate that. I mean, regardless of what line of work we were in, mm -hmm. um, but the amount of attention that high school sports got and, you know, how restrictive things were at that point in time. I think at the beginning, people understood, but as it drag, drug out longer and longer, parents obviously were frustrated and, um, you know, we heard it for sure. Yeah, it's like you want kids to have this outlet, but things were just so unknown. You don't know when you're going to start up, what's allowed, what's safe, what's not safe. It's tough. So you're probably getting a lot of messages about what startup dates, this allowed to play, because they rolled things out in what, like different phases or different levels of sports, right? How'd you guys do it? Yeah, I'm still trying to kind of put that out of my mind. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I have post-traumatic stress <laughs> from everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the greatest things that challenges that we had was the discrepancies between youth sports and high school sports. Right. So, I mean, that was one thing that I was constantly answering questions about is why was it okay for third graders to play CYO basketball, but high school athletes weren't being allowed to play. But that was, again, part of the restrictions that we were receiving from the Department of Health. We certainly you know, respected those decisions, but it was tough to explain to parents and it was tough to justify to our membership. Yeah. And like really test your communi communication skills and your trust is like same with, with the gym. It's like, okay, we know we can reopen, but okay, now you can just be outside. So like, how can we make this the best experience possible outside? And now you're inside, but with mask and like limited space and limited people. So remember the mask, remember those days working out with the mask. That was not a fun time.
Well, and I think we just we just got done talking about all the incredible benefits that kids receive. And that was one of the most difficult things for me. I remember it was April 2020. Um, We just made the decision to go ahead and essentially cancel the remainder of the school year for for high school sports. We knew we weren't going to be able to get them back. And I'll never forget, I sat in my living room and I just thought how many kids are being negatively impacted because we know the benefit that they receive when they participate. When they're not participating, they're not receiving any of those benefits that we just got done discussing. And I think that was the toughest reality for me to come to grips with is that we had hundreds of thousands of kids that were missing out on learning through their experiences of high school sports, from being with their friends, from being positively impacted by their coaches um, and getting the opportunity to compete. Uh, that was tough. I mean, it was those were tough days early on. And then it just got really progressively worse for kids, coaches, parents. Anybody that really had, has a passion for high school sports, it was yeah. a tough two years. And I mean, I think just in general, those extracurricular activities, whether it's sports or let's say theater or anything, it's like, to me, yes, I learned a lot from school itself, but the experiences I got from my extracurricular activities, I've carried with me much longer than anything I got from a book, right? And that's the same, like my niece does theater. I see her and she learns more in theater about life lessons and what she can do than she doesn't. And she loves school, loves school, but I was not that way. But in general, she learns more from that experience there in theater. And then I have brothers that play sports and I think they get more out of, you know, discipline from that and the experiences they get there than they ever would from the books that they get or sitting at a computer, staring at a screen and trying to learn school that way. And just like you said, like, I can't imagine how you felt with having the 600,000 kids to think about. And I'm just worried about my brothers and my nieces, right? And my nephew who, I mean, he's not in school, so I don't have to worry about him too much, but making sure he's healthy, right? But it's like, I can't imagine what you had to, what was going through your brain when everything shut down and you had to cancel that, that season. And then the next school year didn't start any better. I mean, we pushed the whole football season back to March. And the amount of confusion. Yeah, that's that right, the fall two season. Fall two. And, you know, funny thing about fall two, um, we were trying to figure out what to call it, right? So I was sitting in the office and I said, well, we have fall one for cross country, those individual sports. Why don't we call it fall two? So we created fall season two. So later that evening, I was at home watching the news and, you know, the news obviously covered everything we were doing, you know, every single day. And uh, one of the newscasters talked about fall season two. And after the news was over with, my daughters and my wife said, fall too? Who came up with that? That's stupid. And I was like, oh, that, that was me. You know, so I was responsible for fall too. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was chaotic. And thankfully, we're getting to the point where it's less chaotic. And I'm hoping that next school year, when we get to the end, that we're not characterizing it as the, one of the most unprecedented school years we've ever had. I'm hoping for a very normal, boring school year next year where kids participate, they receive incredible benefit, but we don't describe it as an unprecedented year. And, yeah. and those COVID years have also, when we were talking about scholarships and mm. college athletics, the COVID years have screwed over a lot of high school kids because there's not those scholarships available now because you have the COVID seniors, the fifth-year seniors, the transfer portal, all of these different things now. It's a trickle-down effect from, you know, 2020. And I think I was talking to one of the uh, Dutchman players we have in here, and I think, like, this next year, this year and, like, next year, we'll kind of be back to, like, normal. The kids that went into college this year and next year, we'll be back to a little bit normal. But we have kids in here who are seniors. They're 20. Two years old, but they're, act, they're athletically a freshman. I'm right. like, wait, what? Hold on. And I'm like, so you still have like four years left to play. You're going to be playing college at 27 years old. What's going on here? They're going to live their best life. Yeah, right? listen, oh, hey, sure. do you. If it was me, I'd be doing it too. So I'm not going to be mad at it. But I'm like, the, it, it does, it has that trickle down effect. And now you got to think there's less scholarship opportunities at, especially the division one level because of that. Whereas at that division three or division two level or even JUCO, you have, more they have more opportunity to be able to give you because the kids are leaving there to either transfer to bigger schools or they just have the academic money to be able to give you. Well, I think the transfer portal has really hindered mm-hmm. college Absolutely. scholarships as well for mm-hmm. high school kids because now, you know, you may have a third string quarterback from a high powered division one school that's transferring to a lower FBS school. There's no sit out rule anymore, no, right? No, right? That's what makes it crazy. And Dabo Sweeney, I think it was Dabo, he said he 
will not sign anybody from the transfer portal unless he absolutely has to. Because he chose the guys from high school to come to Clemson and play for him. And he doesn't feel like it's right to take somebody that was at another school and give them that position that he told them that he had. And I, I, I loved that I heard that from him. And I, I mean, he's caught flack for other things that, whether it's a shirt he wore or whatever, because just the way of culture is now. But when he said that, I was like, that's awesome that there's at least one coach at a huge program that's willing to say, I'm not going to go into the transfer portal even if it's going to make my team better and make my job easier. Like, I would rather develop the guys here and get them better and give them the opportunity that I promised them, essentially. And I thought that was really cool to hear that from, like a, like I said, a very well-known Division One football coach. Um, and how many guys at that level are going to do that? Sure. You know? I think that that's a huge piece too we can give to high school kids and I think is lacking is like the education on taking that step into college financials, transfer portal, like we talked about scholarships, mm -hmm. like that'd be a nice little course in high school to take yeah. if somebody's serious about, you know, college athletics, you go into that as a sophomore. That could open your eyes and, I don't know, allow you to make better decisions. And NIL has completely disrupted college athletics as well. Oh, right? yeah. True. When you talk about transfer portal, but what NIL has done to college college sports in the last year has been absolutely amazing. Is there NIL in high school? Can they get paid now? There is. Um, we just we were the first state in the country to switch our amateur rule to allow kids to benefit off of their name, image, and likeness. With the caveat within our rule that says you cannot be affiliated to your school. So you can endorse a product, you can appear in an advertisement, but you can't be affiliated to your school in any form or fashion. So you can't be like wearing like a Shen You shirt. cannot wear a Shen it's got, shirt. It's got to be a blank shirt or a Nike shirt. or It's just got to be say. based solely upon your name, image, and likeness with no affiliation to your school. So you can't wear your school uniform, you can't stand in front of the school marquee, you can't be right. with the school mascot. Well, that makes sense. And we were one of the first states to do that because on July 1st of, of 2021, the NCAA changed their NIL rules. And I could already see that we were going to be either challenged or there was going to be laws instituted that was going to require us as a high school athletic association to change our rules. So we were very proactive. And again, we were the first state in the country uh, following that announcement by the NCAA to modify our amateur rule. California always allowed name, image, and likeness within high school sports. Very few kids took advantage of it because of the negative effect it would have had upon their collegiate eligibility. So that was before college at NIL. So you could be high school and Cali NIL, but then doesn't that take away your amateur status? It did, but the main reason why they had that in California was because the Hollywood Actors Guild. So that was a specific role for the California Interscholastic Federation that allowed kids to benefit. But like I said, very few kids did it because they didn't want to negatively impact their college eligibility. Right. But now that that was gone, we said, hey, if there's no detriment to your college athletic mm -hmm. experience or eligibility, why are we going to hold a hard line on this? So we modified our role in October of 20, uh, 2021, and then we've seen nine other states follow our lead, and they've modified their rules and regulations as well. I'll actually be presenting on NIL at our national conference in San Antonio at the end of the month. Well, cool. and I, I, I like that too because with social media, it gives kids a more productive way to use social media than just let me sit here and scroll up and down yeah. or let me look at Johnny over in California, see what he's doing. I got to do this now too. Like now it's like, okay, let me focus on what I can do to make myself a little bit of money here, get my name out there a little bit more to some other coaches or whatever. And it's, it's a more productive way and it can maybe teach them some other skills that they could take later on in life. The big caveat to that though, is kids cannot earn money while they're participating in high school sports as a result of their athletic experience. Right. So if you go out and run a 10K road race on a Saturday morning and annihilate all the other age groupers that Gatorade. are just trying to finish it. Right, Gatorade couldn't pay you for that race that you just ran. You cannot accept that prize money. Right. You can compete for prize money, but you cannot accept it. As soon as you accept that prize money, you're in violation of the amateur rule that so, our membership has established. So essentially it just has to be an yeah. advertisement or something of that nature. Essentially, you need a lot of social media followers. Yeah. You do. It. And That's I, it. Very few kids at the high school level are going to have the ability right. to do that. But my concern was we wanted to be proactive rather than reactive yeah. mm -hmm. as an like association. It's going to head there at some point. Right. It's gonna, it'll head there at some point to the point that you didn't want to be behind the eight ball, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, let's pay these kids for 
the efforts they're putting in, especially in college, and the money that they're bringing in, especially, yeah, especially in this Power Five, especially college, like the Division One level. It's like, how much money is Alabama getting from football? It's and, unbelievable. And and the thing that I always looked at was I'm sitting there and I see Nick Saban getting like eight million dollars a year. I'm like, hold on. You're telling me you can't pay him four and give the other four and spread it out among the 85 football players that you have? Like, there's got to be some balance there. And that's why I I did a presentation in college myself on paying college athletes. And, you know, there was some people that agreed and some people that didn't. But when I explained my viewpoint and I talked about coaches being paid, a lot of kids in the class kind of like that you could see there the switch flip. And I was like, yeah, like, this guy can get paid $8 million a year. Why can't the guy that's going out there and sacrificing his body, his brain and all that, or in other sports, doesn't matter what it is, like sacrificing their body and putting their body through it. This guy's just standing on the sideline. I do think though, we're going to start to see some level of restrictions imposed by the NCAA because they just opened it up. And now they're realizing that the whole aspect of collectives being created at the college level to almost entice or induce kids to come. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Yeah. Right. Right, so you're going to see what? Just restricting how the money can be given or for what? Or, or for, for how it's earned. Right. I mean, if if you're a high school student athlete, you should not be enticed to go to LSU mm. or Alabama or Old Miss right. because of the NIL deals that you're going to receive upon signing your contract. Right. Well, your, then you're back to the Reggie Bush situations, right? right? Where you're yeah, that, throwing it out. And that's where you get, you know, when I think of, you know, and I keep referring back to football just because it's the easiest one when we talk about the NIL because there's so many guys that you know, like that you see with the NIL in there. And the one kid who was committed to Florida State, decommitted from Florida State and went to Jackson State to play with Deion Sanders. And I think because he was already such a well-known, he's like the num- number two prospect in the nation. So he was probably very well-known, knew he could make money off his name, engine, and legacy no matter where he was. So it's finding that balance of, Kids knowing I can make money off of my name, agent, likeness, no matter where I was. I don't need to be influenced. And then not letting the coaches influence them based off of their location. So finding that balance some way and putting on whatever restrictions it is, whether it's how you can make it, how much you can make, whatever it is, there's got to be some restriction so that you don't have, you know, Alabama and Clemson and LSU going, hey, if you come here, you're going to make more money off of your name. And that's all they got to say. They don't have to do anything else. And I don't even know if they need to say that. I think right. kids are going to know it. Exactly. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. The, the, the world of youth sports is changing. You know, that's, that's a lot of what we talked about, but it takes, and there needs to be good leaders in place to help understand how it's changing and understand how that impacts the kids and then understand what changes need to be, be made or, or directions need to be, you know, kind of put in place for the kids to keep them participating and not getting burned out and keep them healthy and not getting physical injury and, and keep, them happy and enjoying sports. I think that's super important and it's it's getting harder to do, but it's people like you in place that kind of helps steer the the crazy ship that's that's moving that is youth sports. It, it is. I mean and no two days are alike in what we do. And but that's the same for any school superintendent, school principal, athletic director, even a teacher or coach. Um, so I have the utmost respect for the people that are working with kids every single day. The ones that are actually going out to those football fields every afternoon at three o'clock, those volleyball courts, um, you know, those are the people that are making the difference in kids' lives. And without our coaches and athletic directors, we wouldn't see the incredible benefit that kids are receiving each and every single day. But again, one of our main priorities as an association is just to find ways to get more kids participating. And um, so the more junior varsity programs we can have, there needs to be a big push. And this is one of our main priorities as we head into our next five-year strategic plan as an association is how do we increase participation at the middle school or modified level? Because I really think that we have a tremendous opportunity to increase participation at the modified. Absolutely. And I remember, again, reverting back to the coach we had from UAlbany. She was the modified coach at Chatham. She started the modified She started program. the modified volleyball program for girls at Chatham. And I forget how many, if you go back and listen to our podcast with Brooke Cram, she'll she says how many girls she had trying out by the time she left the program, essentially. And it was a lot. At the varsity level. At the varsity level. Modified JV and varsity all had a ton of girls wanting to come out and participate. And I think that that you're right. It does start in that middle school age group, like that seventh, eighth grade. How can we get them to participate in sports or more than one sport to help them continue that participation throughout high school? Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. And hopefully... Uh, 
this guy can help us figure it out at some point. <laughs> hopefully, you know? hopefully. Yeah, Rob, no, we really appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking. I know, you know, you play an important role just in this state and, and, and keeping youth sports organized and keeping kids participating. Um, so where can the people find you if they need to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, and, uh, our website is always a good place to to look, and we've you know recently redesigned our state association website to make it more user friendly. But um, you know, I, I I try to be accessible to not only our member schools, but I also answer a lot of questions from parents and kids on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying before we started that my cell phone is on our website, which colleagues of mine throughout the country ask me what you know what the heck are you doing putting your cell phone out there. But I again, it's just part of what I'm trying to do for the state of New York is. If a parent has a question about a particular rule and they can call me and I can answer it in two or three minutes and they can move on rather than searching for something, same thing for an athletic director or principal or school superintendent, I, I feel like that's our role to be a resource. So um, certainly encourage people to follow us on Twitter, uh, not just myself, but our state association, because um, that's where we're, really we put out all of our information on a daily basis, what's happening and uh, what things are changing and how we're trying to move in a positive direction. Perfect, man. Thanks again for coming on. Appreciate everything you do and and for giving us your Friday night to chat about sports and and where we're at and where we're going. So thanks, Rob. Appreciate coming on. Thank you. We'll we'll catch you next time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Boom. This episode of Off Exit 10 is brought to you by Anchor and the all-new Anchor Pro, crafted to endure the most high-performance workouts without the high cost and space requirements of a standard cable machine. Named the best portable cable machine by Men's Health Home Gym Awards, Anchor provides the full functionality of a cable machine in one small space-saving unit. Designed with user-friendliness in mind, Anchor can simply be attached to any squat rack or placed on any wall in your home gym using its intuitive sliding track mount. With up to 65 pounds of resistance, Anchor is built for high speed and controlled exercises alike, from cable presses and rows to chops and lifts. The Anchor has been a game changer for us here at CDSF, and now you can enjoy the same professional quality cable machine in your own home gym by heading over to anchortraining.com and using code CDSF10 for 10% off your order today. Get all the benefits of a cable machine without the high cost and installation fees. Enjoy the portable luxury and space-saving performance of Anchor today by going to anchortraining.com and using code CDSF10 at checkout. That's anchortraining.com promo code CDSF10 for 10% off your order today.